Well, as a, a Cowboys fan, a Rangers fan, and a Stars fan, there's one thing that I've come to learn, and that is my teams that I like and championships are polar opposites of one another. <laughs> the uh, Dallas Stars were in the Stanley Cup final up until two nights ago when they lost to the Tampa Bay Lightning 2-0 in game six. And my wife and I were out. We were having dinner with another couple, which was just a better use of my time anyways. But I recorded the game, and I asked my wife, after dinner was over, I said, I need you to check the score and answer me whether this is going to be a progressively sanctifying event or a regressively sanctifying event for me to watch that game. And uh, thankfully, she was kind to me, and I found out what the final score was, and I saved myself some heartache in that. But yeah, I, my son Joshua yesterday was telling me, Dad, I, I, I think I'm a Yankees fan. I said, Joshua, you cannot be a Yankees fan. You are not allowed to be a Yankees fan. And he said, but dad, they have all the best players. And I said, yes, I understand. And that's exactly why you can't be a Yankees fan. You have to ride the lows with your team. You can't just find the team that's the best and just follow them because they've got all the best players and they win. So he said, okay, fine. I won't be a Yankees fan. I'll be a Dodgers fan instead. <laughs> I said, Josh, you missed you miss the point, man. You missed the point. But for me, my teams and championships, they, they just, they seem to repel one another at least for the last 20 years in my life. The Stars won the Cup in 99, but it's been 20 years, right? And I, I got to thinking about that because that's really what we're talking about on a, a small scale when we talk about God's glory and our sin. As much as my team has no shot at winning a championship, sin has no shot in the presence of God. And I want us to think about Isaiah 6 again as we get into this passage in Romans 1, but I want us to go back to where we were last week because you had Isaiah standing before the throne of God, standing before the glory of God and, and overwhelmed by the glory of God. And he's led to that statement in Isaiah 6, 5 when he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am defiled. I should not be here. I am I'm guilty. And he's pronouncing that sentence of, of damnation upon himself. And the reason for that is because of his sin. And Isaiah, in his sinfulness, was standing before the full glory of God. And those two things are completely incompatible. And what we're going to find in Romans 1 as we get into this passage together this morning is why those two things are completely incompatible. Why is sin such a big deal? Again, the goals of this series is we want to understand God's glory from beginning to end. God's glory from creation through culmination. God's glory from first creation to new creation, right? And sin is there in this central part of this story, and it stands opposed to the glory of God. And, and we're going to understand why that is here this morning, but it's, it's still part of God's overarching plan. God's sovereignty includes man's rebellion and man's sinfulness. And so it's important for us in the, the grand scheme of this series to understand the nature of sin, to understand why it's such a problem in order for us to understand what God is doing through the atonement, what God is doing through the cross, what God is doing through even down the road through judgment and through the full display of his glory. If you're not there already, grab your Bibles, open them up if you would to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read together verses 18 through 25, which will be our text for the rest of our time this morning. Paul writes this in Romans 1.18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul begins this, for the wrath of God is revealed. In verse 17, right before this, he had said, the righteousness of God is revealed. And the reason why the righteousness of God being revealed in verse 17 was necessary is because of what he's talking about in verses 18 through 25. It's because here he's saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This concept of God's wrath is an interesting one. It's one that we don't like to talk about too much. It's one that certainly our culture doesn't like to think about or dwell about, but God's wrath as one commentator put it, is his unswerving, pitiless, terrible fury against sin. His unswerving, pitiless, terrible fury against sin. It's his rage, it's his anger, it's his just response to our sin. We read about it in the Old Testament, especially in Jeremiah 21.5. In the context here, God is addressing Jerusalem. He's addressing his people and he's telling them, look, Babylon is coming and I'm going to do nothing to stop them. I will not respond to your pleas. I will not respond to your cries. Why? Because I'm pouring out my wrath. He says this in 21.5. I myself, says the Lord, will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. Then in Ezekiel 13, 13, God's wrath is compared to a storm when the Lord says, thus thus says the Lord, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. I remember driving from Missouri to Arizona and we came down through Oklahoma to get there and Oklahoma decided it was going to unleash upon us at that point in time. And it was the most frightening, terrifying storm that I've ever been in in my life. There were tornado alerts going off on our phone all over the place. Hail was pounding on our car. And it was it was overwhelming. And that's that's the picture of Ezekiel 13, 13, except it's not rain and hail, it's the wrath of God being poured out upon us. In Nahum verses five and six of chapter one, the prophet writes, The mountains The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. this, This wrath is not like our anger, right? If you get cut off on the road and you're having a bad day, you're going to get angry by that person who cut you off on the road. It's just that one more culmination. It's that one more thing that's going to draw your ire. It's going to draw your anger. But if you're leaving work to go on a month-long vacation, you're leaving work to go on a week-long vacation, you're leaving work to go home and you've got date night that night and somebody cuts you off on the road, you know what? You're going to be a little bit less perturbed by that because in the big picture, you're thinking to yourself, it's fine. 
I'm not too worried about what that guy did. I've got nowhere to be in a hurry. I'm going home. This is going to be a great evening. We're going to have a great week, whatever it may be, right? And so there are times where somebody may offend us, and we may choose to just simply overlook that. It's no big deal to us, right? Well, that's not the case with God's wrath. See, God's wrath is more akin to a natural law in response to sin. If all of us go up on top of 120 West here and we were to step off the edge of 120 West, what's going to happen every time? We're going to fall, right? Why? Because gravity exists, yes? There's no situation, at least here on earth, wherein you're going to step off a building and gravity is going to overlook that offense. No, gravity is going to drag you down to the earth as fast as it possibly can. Well, that's like God's wrath and sin. When sin occurs, his wrath responds. And it has to because of God's character, because God is just, because God is holy, because God is perfectly righteous. It's, a, it's an instinctual response of his to respond to sin in wrath, to respond to sin in that unswerving, pitiless, terrible rage and fury. And that's what Paul says is being revealed from heaven here against sin, against ungodliness, against unrighteousness. And he says it is being revealed. It's a a present tense there. And there's a a sense in which it is a a present revealing of it. In fact, as Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 28, he talks about what that present revelation of God's wrath looks like, and he uses the language. In fact, three times he talks about God turning over, handing over mankind to their sins. And as we look at that, that's, that's a glimpse of God's present judgment against mankind. And certainly we can see that in our culture, in our society, in the world in which we live. When we see sin being celebrated, when we see sin being glorified, when we see laws being passed that just make sin easier and more palatable and make holiness and godliness more unattractive and more uh, un- unworthy of, quote-unquote, civilized people according to our culture and our society, right? When we see these things, right, it's evidence that God is turning us over to our sinfulness, saying, okay, I've sent my prophets, I've sent my word, I've warned you enough, have it your way. And so there's that present revelation of God's wrath in context here as God is turning us over, right? In fact, even in verse 24, therefore God gave them up. It's that same concept there. Okay, fine, have it. Have the lust of your heart. If you think that is where the answer is, have it. That is God's judgment against us. But yet there's also a future sense. It's, it's being revealed, but then think of Romans 2.5, where Paul says there that we are storing up wrath for ourselves, those of us that are not in Christ, if you are not in Christ. Paul would say, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of judgment, on the day of wrath. And so that wrath is being revealed, but it's being revealed in the sense of storing up, of building up, of reserving wrath. Why? Because that's, again, God's only acceptable, right, logical response to sin. Paul explains further. He says the reason why this wrath is coming from verse 18 is because of this in verses 19 through 20. Because what can be known about God is plain to them. Who? To the men who are suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness and ungodliness. What can be known about God is is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they're without excuse. 
We've talked about these passages and in passages like this before already in this series. You've got Psalm 19.1 where David says there, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. We've got passages like the first one in our series, Colossians 1.16, which says that God created everything in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. We've got Isaiah 6.3 where the angelic cry, the, the cry of the seraphs there around the throne of God is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of what? His glory. That the whole earth testifies to his existence. The whole earth testifies to his glory. And now Paul is walking through this now concluding argument even as we, we set it up that way. And he says these things. He says, number one, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It's evident. It's there. It's, it's observable. It's not hidden. It's plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. Notice this is past tense here. God has shown. He has revealed that he is there. He's made this plain. He's shown it to them. Well, how has he shown it to them? Well, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world where? In the things that have been made. See, Paul's saying it's, it's been made abundantly clear that God exists. This world testifies to his glory. The heavens above declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. And the end is, the final indictment there is there without excuse. No one at the end, no one on the day of judgment, no one when God's wrath is finally ultimately revealed, that wrath that's being poured out in verse 18, when that wrath is finally ultimately revealed, no one can stand before God and say, yeah, but God, I didn't know. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 1, 18 through 25. That's what he's saying specifically in Romans 1, 18 through 20. He's saying, no, you knew you just simply suppressed the truth. In 1789, there was a ship that set sail from England known as the HMS Bounty. The HMS Bounty is now known for what event that took place on board? Mutiny, right? They sailed to the South Pacific. They stopped for five months in Tahiti, and the men, the, the crew of the ship became enamored with the tropical culture, and even some of them married some of the Tahitian women that were there. And so when the captain gathered them back together to say, it's time to return to England and, and fulfill our mission. The crew got back on the boat begrudgingly. And when the captain began to exercise discipline against the crew for their, their, uh, their opposition to his leadership, the crew began to mount in their unrest and mount in their frustration to the point that finally they took the captain and 18 of his supporters and they put them in a dinghy. They lured them down in the middle of the ocean and they left them at sea. By the way, side note there, that captain went on, led his crew back home, and suffered two more mutinies after that. He probably should find a new job. That's my guess. But what is mutiny, right? Mutiny is rebelling against the authority of a leader. It's refusing to submit to their wishes and their desires. And, and so often for us men, that's what sin is in our lives. Sin is mutiny against God. And what Paul is laying out for us here in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, is at a foundational level, globally, universally, across all of, of history, sin has been this mutinous denial of God's existence as he has created a world to say exactly the opposite, that he is there and that he does exist. And so as we're thinking about sin, as we're thinking about Isaiah 6, and why is this such a big deal, Isaiah? Why are you saying, woe is me? Why are sin 
Is sin and God's glory, why are those two things completely incompatible with one another? Well, our first answer tonight is this, because it's mutiny against God's creative purposes. Sin is mutiny against God's creative purposes. God has never been coy or covert about why he created. God created for what purposes? purpose? To glorify himself, right? That's why he did everything that he did at creation. That's why he is doing everything that he's doing now. And that's why he will always do everything that he does. In Christ, through Christ. And then that final statement and, and claim was for Christ. That everything is moving towards the goal of the exaltation of Jesus. That everything is about the glory of God. God has never pulled punches. In fact, what Romans 1 is saying, what Paul is saying here is that's creation testifies to his existence as creator. And if it testifies to his existence as creator, then that would imply that creation exists to glorify him as the creator. See, God has never been coy about that. He's never been shy about that. But at the same time, the world has never been shy about its opposition to him either. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, we live in a world governed by the prince of the power of the air, governed by the evil one right now. And the, the world's system wants our eyes not on creation to glorify God, but wants our eyes on creation to glorify us. To suppress the truth that God exists. To suppress the truth that this world has been created and we are accountable to that God. No, rather the world says, look around. What do you see? What do you want? What do you crave? What do you lust after? What, what's going to give you that sense that you are something great? Go after those things. And those are those mutinous desires. Those are those desires that creep into our lives that turn what God has, has intended in creation on its head. And it makes this world all about us rather than all about God. It's these mutinous desires, men, that we have to daily battle because our flesh is going to appeal to them every single day. Our culture is going to appeal to them every single day. And we need to make sure that we are battling those things and holding fast to Christ, holding fast to what God has created us to do. What is our creative purpose, right? Go back to Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then, therefore, God said, let us make man in our what? Image. So our creative purpose, man, not just the mountains and the heavens and the seas. and it, No, our creative purpose is that we would be the image bearers of God, that we would glorify God through representing him in the world around us. That's going to be a daily battle for us because our flesh is going to want to go the opposite direction. But this is why our sin and God's glory are so opposed to one another. It's because it's a, a mutinous act that denies the creative purposes of God. Paul continues his argument in verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they instead became fools. For although they knew God. It's an interesting word that Paul uses there. Maybe it's one that we stumble over a little bit. What is that knowledge that he's talking about? What is the nature of this knowledge that he's talking about? 
Is it saving knowledge that Paul is referring to here? No. No. Nobody looks at the beach and says, oh, wow, the beach is gorgeous. It must have been created. Nobody looks at the force of gravity being just right to keep us on this earth and not crush us or send us floating into the, the cosmos and say, oh, wow, look at that. That's so amazing. Obviously, a creator did this, which means that I'm a sinner because I've rebelled against his perfect standard, and I can't make myself holy. And in his grace and mercy, he, he must have condescended and, and the second member of this trinity, because it obviously exists as a, as a trinity, and the second member took on flesh and lived a, a perfect life and, and then died on the cross for my sins. And if I repent from my sins now and put my faith in Jesus, then my sins are forgiven. And I'm going to, since he rose from the dead, then, then I too will overcome death and I will rise and I will live with him for all of eternity. No one looks at gravity and draws those conclusions. Nobody looks at a mountain and draws those conclusions. Nobody looks at the hills and draws those conclusions. Nobody looks at the stars and draws those conclusions. See, what we're talking about here is the difference between general revelation and special revelation. The content of the gospel, the content that saves, comes from special revelation. Not only the special revelation of what's contained in the pages of God's word, but also if we understand 2 Corinthians 4 correctly, the special revelation of God shining the light of Christ into our lives to be able to allow us to, to see the, the good news of the gospel. That's not the knowledge that Paul is talking about here. When he says, although they knew God, he's talking about being able to look at creation, look at the force of gravity, look at the fine-tuned precision of the tilt of the earth on its axis such that we are not too close or too far from the sun to, to look at the design and say okay there must be an intelligent designer out there this is the level of knowledge that paul is talking about here this is what god has made plain this is what god has made evident is that he exists that he is the creator that this world didn't just bang pop into existence to quote frank turek that we have not gone from the goo to the zoo to you. Creation says God exists. And that's the knowledge that all humanity is held accountable to. That's the knowledge that the, the mutiny of sin suppresses and says, I'm not going to agree with that. I'm not going to listen to that. And here Paul says they fail to do two things that creation is, is intended to cause us to do. And the first is the, of those is to honor God, to honor him. As we look around at this world and we see that God exists, it should cause us to honor him. Now that word there in the Greek is the word doxadzo. It's where we get our Greek or our English word, word rather doxology, which means to praise, right? Well, it's also the Greek word doxa at its root there, which is the word glorify. Glorify. So as Paul is building his case in his is grand indictment against all of humanity. One of the things that we have failed to do in response to God's revelation of himself in all of creation is we have failed to glorify him. And remember, that's why he created in the first place, right? He says they did not honor him, praise him, extol him, glorify him. Nor, he says, did they what? Give thanks to him. They didn't give thanks to him. That he is the source of everything. That he is the giver of every good gift. That everything that we have in our lives is, is his. And as Christians, that takes on a, a different impact for us, a different reason uh, for us to, to give thanks. But even the, the lost world, Paul is saying, should still give thanks to the creator, God, for common grace, right? For sun, for rain, for 
clothes on your back, for food on your table. The, the, the common grace of God, the, the wrath of God is being stored up against humanity for neglecting to do something as simple as giving thanks to God for the air that they breathe. Instead, what have men done? They've, they've turned to themselves. If you can flip over there quickly, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's just one book over from where we're at in Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes this, beginning in verse 20. He says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly, through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of men, of God rather, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, that are nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might, what? Boast in the presence of God. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so Paul is saying here that that's the failure of the world. The world is not honoring God. The world is not giving thanks to God for his wisdom. Rather, the world is boasting in its own wisdom. The world is, is puffing itself up. And Paul says that what that ends up in, as he says in, in Romans 120, as he says, or rather, excuse me, 21, he says that they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, sin refuses to give God the glory that he's due. Not only is it a mutinous attack against God, refusing to do what, what he's created the world to do, but then beyond that, it says, no, I'm not going to give God the glory. The glory instead is not for God, but for man. Sin refuses to acknowledge what God has made so plain. So the second reason why sin is a big deal, why Isaiah had to say, woe is me, is this. It's self-exalting rather than God-exalting. Sin is self-exalting rather than God-exalting. God has given us his wisdom in the gospel and said, here it is. It's available. It's free. It's right here. And yet, what has man done? Man has instead said to the Lord, no thanks, I've got this. I'm going to put my confidence and my faith in my wisdom, in my knowledge, in my understanding. Rather than to worship a crucified Savior, don't you realize, you silly Christians, what an oxymoron that is? See, the world wants to boast in itself. Sin short-circuits God's creative purposes. And one of the main reasons it does that, or main ways that it does that, is it convinces us that we deserve the honor and thanksgiving for everything in our lives, rather than God deserving the honor and thanksgiving for everything in our lives. It takes God off the throne and puts us on the throne. Here are some of the ways that it keeps us from honoring and thanking the Lord. 
first thing sin is going to do is it's going to want you to dwell on what you don't have, not on what you've been given. And then these are not just things that unbelievers are dealing with. These are things that you and I face, that you and I struggle with. It's going to cause you to look at your neighbor's car. It's going to cause you to look at your neighbor's house, your neighbor's family, your neighbor's vacation. It's going to cause you to to look at those things and to say about those things, why don't I have those things? It's going to get your eyes off all of the good things that God has given you things that we should be honoring him for and thanking him for, and it's going to get you rather on the things that you don't have, the things that you feel like you deserve. Second, sin is is going to want you to dwell on missed opportunities, not on all the good things that you've experienced. Sin is going to make you live in the land of the what-ifs. What if I had gotten that job? What if I had studied that instead? What if I had married that person instead of who I married? What if I had said this to my kids instead? What if I had gotten that promotion? Instead of having you give thanks and honor God for the the things that he's done in your life, the, the experiences that you've had, and praising him for that. Third, sin wants you dwelling on somebody else's success, not on how far the Lord has brought you. Well, why did that person get a promotion and not me? Why does that guy deserve to be my boss? Why can't I be in that role? Instead of praising and honoring God for the success that he's brought to your life, for the good things that he's given to you in your life that are are providing for you right now. And finally, sin wants you dwelling on what's going wrong, not on what's going right. These are the thoughts that fill our minds as we fall asleep at night thinking about every single thing that's wrong with our house, right? Everything that's wrong with our car, everything that's wrong with our family, everything that's wrong with our marriages. Rather than honoring and thanking God for the things that are good, the things that are right, the things that are working, the fact that we even have a roof over our heads, right? See, sin wants us thinking not about God, but about ourselves. Sin is self-exalting rather than God-exalting. You remember the scene in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he had this dream of this tree, and this tree was massive, and there were animals that were taking shelter there, but then all of a sudden the tree got chopped down, and the animals fled, and there was a stump left, and the stump had a band of iron around it. Well, it says later on in Daniel chapter 4, verses 29 through 30, that at the end of 12 months, so after just a year after this vision, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And what does it say in the next verse? While the words were still in his mouth, the vision came to pass. If you know the story, he was driven from his kingdom, made to live and act and behave like a wild animal until he recognized, no, the glory belongs to who? God, right? 
Well, sin wants us all to be Nebuchadnezzar. Is this not my great empire that I have built? Rather than honoring God, praising God, giving thanks to God, right? So as we look at this in the, in the world, men, this is the world continuing their suppression of the knowledge that God is the creator. Refusing to honor him as the creator, refusing to give thanks for even the common grace in their lives. But men, we need to guard against this as believers too. And be sure that we have a regular habit of honoring the Lord for the good things that he's given to us. James says in chapter 1, right? Every good gift is from the Lord. Every good gift is from the Lord. Are we returning thanks for those things? Are we praising him for the good things in our lives? Are we looking for the good things in our lives, right? For some of us, the, the application for this morning is we need to take a, a, an inventory of our lives and say, okay, let me just literally write out on a piece of paper all of the good things that God is doing in my life right now. And be sure to include common graces in there, right? If the world is held accountable for giving thanks to God for common graces, you and I better believe that we're going to be held accountable for common graces that God has given us in our lives. But then beyond that, all the other good gifts that we can specifically as believers understand come from him. The world says, no, I'm not going to honor and praise the Lord. I'm going to instead rely on my own wisdom, which is going to leave me in a place of futility and a place of a darkened heart. Claiming to be wise, in verse 22, they became fools. He continues, and those fools, what happened? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. There's a word that appears twice in this context, and it's the word exchange. 23 and 25. They exchange the glory, they exchange worship. To exchange is to change one thing out for another. It's to swap, right? We think of the great exchange at the cross in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that Christ exchanged his righteousness, his perfect obedience for our sin at the cross, right? That's the great exchange at the cross. Paul's talking about a different kind of exchange here, the the exchange that sin makes. The first exchange is it exchanges the glory of God for the glory of creation. The glory of God for the glory of creation. It swaps out God's rightful glory and instead seeks our glory. And the second exchange that's made is the exchange of God's worship Worship that he is rightly due for instead the worship of the creature. Worship of ourselves, worship of this world. And this isn't new, is it, right? I mean, this is the, the, the oldest trick in the book. This is how sin approached, this is how Satan rather approached Eve. It wasn't just with the fruit saying, hey, isn't this piece of fruit attractive? We know what it was because in the text it says when she saw that the, the fruit was appealing, was looked good for food, but that wasn't the lure. The real lure was when Satan went to Eve and said to Eve, look, God, you're not going to die because God knows that in the day that you eat of this, you will what? Be like God. Eve, get God off his high and mighty throne. Eve, pull up a chair next to the Godhead. You deserve to be like him. 
He's not the only one that deserves the glory. Eve, you deserve a piece of that glory. He doesn't deserve all the worship. Man, what a cruel God. He's just vindictive. He's just a petulant child. Eve, he just knows that if you eat of this, you're going to be just like him. And don't you want to be like God, Eve? So you see, this has been the enemy's ploy from the very beginning. And if we understand the fall of Satan through the lens of Isaiah 14 and, and other passages, it seems like that was Satan's own foible as well. Wanting to be like God. Wanting to exchange God's glory. That is that he is the only one rightfully worthy of glory. That this world exists to glorify him. No, sin comes along and says, eh, let's swap that out. The glory of God for the glory of creation. The worship of God for the worship of creation. Basically, humanity has taken Colossians 1.16 and said, okay, fine, you can have your Jesus in your first two points. It was created in Jesus and, and through Jesus, but for us. That's the world in which we live. And that's why, again, sin is such a massive problem. This is why Isaiah, again, stands before God and says, woe is me. Why? Third reason. Because sin replaces the creator with his creation. Because sin replaces the creator with his creation. And in response, God gives this terrifying word in verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Therefore God gave them up. The passivity of God is a terrifying thing to be turned over to our sin, to be given over to our lusts, where God removes his voice, where God removes his influence. And you may think to yourself, well, that's not going to happen to me because I'm a Christian. And that's true. If you are in Christ, God is not going to give you up. Right, we go to John chapter 6, all that the Father has given me will come to me and I will lose none of them. We go to Ephesians chapter 1, that you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of your inheritance until the day you acquire possession of it. We go to 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says we are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last, last times. Yes, if you are in Christ, God is not going to give you up, give you over. But men, let me encourage you that or rather warn you or, or exhort you that these passages like this one or even the passages in, in the book of Hebrews, the warning passages, even the passages that say something like it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, right? These passages, men, should serve for us as we are on the straight and narrow as guardrails on the sides. Again, if you've ever driven a mountain road, a windy mountain road, and you're on that edge and you look over that edge and you see the danger that's there, you're thankful that that guardrail is there, aren't you? You're thankful that that guardrail is there. And yeah, maybe that guardrail is not going to stop your car from going over, but that guardrail is reminding you of the danger that exists there and it's keeping you focused. It's keeping you on that straight and narrow. So when we read things, man, like in Romans 1, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. It needs to be a gut check for us as Christians. It needs to be that guardrail that reminds us of the danger of sin, of the mutinous act that sin is, of the self-exalting nature of sin. And we need to make sure that we are doing battle against sin daily, that we are going to war against sin, that we are rooting it out in every crevice and corner of our lives. I don't know if you've ever had fleas in your house before. 
But the thing about a flea is you can't see one or two and think to yourself, ah, no big deal. Because the way that God has designed fleas, he has made those suckers one of the most reproductively proliferate organisms that the world has ever known. I read a stat recently where I think a, a single female can lay 100,000 eggs in her lifetime or something. Something absolutely ridiculous. So if you are at your home and you all of a sudden see one or two fleas, you need to go to war against those fleas. You need to get the, the, the bug people out there and tell them to nuke your house. You may be thinking that I'm talking from experience and you'd be correct on that. Why? Because if you don't, if you think, well, it's one or two fleas, what's the damage? Before you know it, you're going to have millions. You're going to be overrun by them. And see, men, it's the same thing with sin in our lives. We can't look at one or two sins in our lives and think to ourselves, ah, what's the big deal? It's just one sin. It's just two sins. It's just a small sin. It's just a, it's just a, a tiny little thing over here. What's the big deal? See, man, if, if that's our approach to sin, then sin is going to multiply just like those fleas, and we will be overrun by sin in our lives. Your faith will stagnate. Your relationship with the Lord will come to a screeching halt. Your progression in the faith will be nothing, and you will be left there, and you will say, why am I so dry? Why am I so distant? Why is my relationship with the Lord so bad right now? And the answer is because you've got an infestation in your life, and that infestation is sin, because you haven't dealt with it as the danger that it truly is. See, man, this act of mutiny, it's, it's an act of treason. It's one thing to rebel against the captain of a ship. It's another thing to rebel against the king. And our act of sin against God is one and the same because the captain of our lives is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Sin is a serious thing. Remember, sin, every sin draws the wrath of God. And I mentioned that the cross was the great exchange. What sin perpetuates is the grave exchange. Our lust, for example, is a desire to be satisfied with something more than or other than Jesus. It's looking at Jesus and saying, you're not enough, I, I, I want more. It's, in a very real sense here, it's worshiping the creature, the, cre the creation, rather than the creator. How about our anger? Our anger is expressing dissatisfaction with what the creator has done in our lives. Saying to the creator, what you've done is not good enough for me. I'm angry because my life hasn't gone this way. I'm angry because this happened to my life. Hatred or slander is looking at the creation of the creator, the, the image bearer of the creator, and, and, and slandering that, attacking something that God created to bear his glory. Covetousness or greed similar to lust on that one, is, is desiring something that God hasn't given you, saying, God, you haven't done enough for me. What you have given me to glorify you is not sufficient. And then, of course, the most obvious one, the final one is pride, which is desiring the worship and glory that rightly belongs only to the creator. See, sin is it's never going to come to us like this on the surface. Sin is going to come to us and look like, man, that's the logical decision. And our flesh is going to rationalize it. 
And so, men, we have to do the hard work. We have to be battling. We have to be vigilant. We have to be watchful. We have to be on guard because it is a big deal. We have to make sure that we are standing under the, the, the revelation that God has given us in his word, saying, God, you have created me to glorify you. You are on the throne, not me, not creation. We have to be praying, God, show me every sin in my life so I can root it out because I want to I obey you. I want to glorify you with my life. Colossians 3, 5 through 6 gives a, a list of sins in verse 5, and then Paul says this in verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Similarly, in Ephesians 5, in verses 3 through 5, Paul gives a list of sins. And he says, Let no one deceive you, in verse 6, with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. In Romans 1.18, like we just read, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. See, all of our sin, again, men, draws the wrath of God. Every sin that we commit draws the wrath of God. It's what led Isaiah to say, woe is me, as he stood before the glory of God, because the glory of God in our sin is totally incompatible. And so God's solution to that is one of two things. His wrath is going to be poured out. The question for us is, is God's wrath against your sin going to be poured out on Christ at the cross or in eternal damnation. Either way, his wrath will be exhausted against your sins. The question is how? Let's pray. Father, sin is a heavy subject to deal with, especially so early in the morning. And I thank you for these men. I thank you that they're here. I thank you that they were just tracking and attentive, God. I just pray that you would be kind to us to help us be men who are zealous for godliness, zealous for holiness, zealous to battle sin in our lives, God. We want to do that. And we want to do that ultimately, Lord, because we want to live lives of faithfulness to you, to glorify you, to exalt Christ. And we pray that we would do that today in Jesus' name. Amen.